Our New Testament reading today is continuing in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read verses 9 through 25. Uh, today we will be looking at verse 11 and next week verse 12, separating that section into two messages. But focus on 11 and 12, we'll read from 9 to the end of the chapter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and Gentile, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is to you if you sin and are beaten for it, and you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him to whom judges justly. <clears throat> He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now the, the book of First Peter has a lot of information for Christian living, Christian living in a very hostile and very sinful and corrupt world. And in the first two chapters, he's been spending a lot of time emphasizing who the people of God are, we, the believers. And he tells us back in chapter 1, verse 3, that we were, he caused us to be born again. In verse 4, we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. In verse 5, we are guarded by him in our faith. 
In verse 6, we are tested and proved by trials. And then in verse 13 and following, he applies these doctrinal truths, urging us to walk rightly before God. He continues on that we've been purified, that we are to grow up in our faith, the first two chapters, or first two verses of the chapter, uh, concluding really that, that section. And then in chapter 2, he talks about how we've been honored and blessed as God's people, that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house in verse 5. And in verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then he moves now in verse 9 back to application, urging us to walk right before God and before men. So in verse 11, which we'll look at today, how we should be living purely, abstaining from the sins that war against our soul. Verse 12, living purely, maintaining a good testimony before all men. Verse 13, maintaining that testimony by being subject to all government authorities. And then further down in verse 18, maintaining that testimony by being subject to our masters. And so we'll be looking at those in the coming week. But here we will look at living purely as, well, as sojourners and exiles. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we do come before you this morning to look into your word, into this verse, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, encourage our hearts by them, so that we might live a more holy and more godly life before you and before men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, he has... Oops. All over. <clears throat> All the way back in the first verse of the book, he referred to us as the elect exiles of the dispersion. We were compared to the scattered seed, which goes throughout the world, uh, like yeast in bread. Jesus used that as a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in three measures of flour till all was leavened. You know, it changes and transforms the whole flour, even though the leavening, the yeast, or the baking soda is very small. And we are let be the salt and the light of the world, Jesus says. And we are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For the sake of him, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. However, he's not really talking about our being scattered in the world at this point, as far as living as sojourners and exiles. He, he's more focused than that. The meaning here 
It's also not that we are somehow refugees or that we are exiled from our home. Uh, not that we are expatriates, patriot, P-A-T-R-I-O-T, having forsaken our old country to live in a new one. Uh, it's become very popular today because people want to avoid taxes. So they get a lot of money and they suddenly leave the country so they don't have to pay. Uh, we're not migrants. We're not immigrants. We're more along the lines of what they call expatriates, P-A-T-R-I-A-T-E. Uh, that's what they call expats, people who live in another country. They haven't forsaken their country necessarily. They haven't sought citizenship in the new country. They're living there essentially, as he says, Peter says here, as strangers. They're living amongst them, but they haven't become one of them. There is a sense in which Adam was exiled from the garden, and we are living as exiles in the world in that way, but that's not what he's talking about. He's calling us strangers, the, the one who lives in a place without the right of citizenship, and exiles, meaning the one who's taken up residence in a foreign country and not living in their own country anymore. Uh, as a pastor and missionary in Cambodia, I was considered an expat by the embassy as well as by the people there, meaning that I was living there under their rules and under their laws, but I had no intention of staying there. I wasn't a migrant worker. I wasn't a you know, immigrant. My home was still the U.S. And that's kind of the idea here. We're living, not having forsaken heaven, not having been kicked out of heaven, but we're living with heaven as our home, our country, our nation, our, where we belong, but we're living in this world as strangers and as pilgrims. Now, we also don't want to get the idea that somehow we're living as monks in a monastery. Uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, you'll remember in verse 15, said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We are to be in the world. We are the salt and the light. You can't be salt and light. You can't be a lamp on a stand or a city on a hill if you're hiding in a monastery. Right? We have a purpose. We have a place here to be a witness, to be a testimony, to be missionaries for our country to this world. Now, Paul talks about this idea of monasteries briefly in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, and I do want to read that. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedies or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, everybody in the world is corrupt and sinful, if you couldn't associate with them, you couldn't be in the world. If you couldn't be in the world, you couldn't be a, a witness and a testimony, a lamp on its stand, a light on its hill. But he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and is guilty of these things, be it sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. But he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
And he ends that with purge the evil person from among you. So in his defending the need to purify the church and judge those in the church, he's pointing out, you know, you live in the world and the world is guilty of all of those sins and you are still to be amongst them. And that's really the meaning of this idea of being sojourners and exiles, that we are living among them, more like expatriates, expats. Right? We live according to both the local laws and customs to some extent, but we also live according to the laws of our home country. If you do something that's a crime in America overseas, they're not going to be happy in America and you may not be able to come home. You know, the same with our heavenly kingdom. If we're living a life of rebellion against heaven, you know, it shows that we really don't belong there and we don't have a place there. Or that we will be chastised for it and trained not to do that. Uh, many people think, oh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Uh, a lot of people who go overseas go overseas to live in the debauchery and the drugs and whatever is going on over there. That's why they go there, to be free of the constraints of civilization. And that's why many expats have such a bad reputation. I was, as a large man with a beard, I was treated as a sex predator because that's what they assumed. Every large white man with a beard is there to molest children because you can buy them freely in that country. Uh, we're not to live like that. We don't go into the sins of the locals, but we live amongst them. We're warned by Paul in Ephesians 4:17 and 18 that we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorances in them due to the hardness of heart. Our life as exiles, as sojourners in this world, it's not to conform to the world, because that's death. But to be transformed into the image of Christ, to live according to the rules of his kingdom, and to be living that life here, and that makes us essentially ambassadors. As I read earlier, we are here trying to show the world the light of Christ with everything we do with everything we are, with all of our strength. As we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, or 1 Corinthians 5, a moment ago, you know, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That appeal would not be very good if we are living in the same sin and debauchery the world is in. And we say, you know, come and be holy as God is holy. And they look at us and say, but you're not holy. You're living the same life we are. What's the value of your God? And so we are living as strangers and pilgrims here, not living like them, but living like Christ has called us to. And we also, we live every day knowing and remembering that this is not our home. And when I lived in Cambodia, I always felt like an outsider. I go to the market, I pay double the price the locals pay because I was white. You know, racial profiling over there. It, it's a real thing. And every day I woke up, I knew this is not my home. I need to be careful how I live. I need to be careful of my testimony, be careful of my walk because I don't want to get in trouble with the law 
But I also don't want to bring shame and disgrace to Christ. And so we lived there knowing it wasn't our home. And we should live here knowing that this is not our home. Our home is in heaven, and we are strangers here. We are pilgrims here. We are not members of this society. We, As Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. We're not part of this kingdom. Now, I'm happy, especially when I travel the world, to be an American. Uh, yes, they do hate Americans in most of the world, but we have a lot of protections. There's not much they can do. They can harass us a little, but they're not going to do anything too much. We have a great nation, had a great nation to be a member of, but it's not my home. My home is still heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and there we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. You know, we are no longer strangers and aliens in heaven, Ephesians 2.19. But we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know, every day that should be before our mind. This world is not my home. The things this world wants and desires and respects and honors are not necessarily the things my Heavenly Father wants and respects and desires and honors. And I should be focused on him. Because as Peter said in the first chapter, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for us in heaven. You know, when I lived in the mission field, I was very reluctant to buy things. You know, food and clothing, yes, but things that I couldn't bring back with me, I didn't really want to buy. Why? Well, because I was going to leave and you can't take it with you. And all of the things of this world, we can't take with us. You know, as a young man, I was very materialistic. I loved to have things. Right? The man with the most toys when he dies wins. That was my motto as a young man. And all of my income went into buying stuffs. But I can't take it with me to heaven. Just as I couldn't bring it back with me from Cambodia. So my interest in material things over there was much less. Because I remembered that I could be forced to leave tomorrow. They might not renew my, my visa. They might tell the Christian pastors and teachers to get out of the country. It happens. Well, we live that way in this world. I might die tomorrow. Is my car, is my house, are my toys, all, all that important? What's important? Being ready for heaven. Having my treasure there so that when I get home, I have things. Glorious and good things. An imperishable, undefiled, unfading treasure. And so we are to live as strangers in this world. But he brings us into a little more focus next. Right? We are to live as strangers abstaining from the passions of the flesh. We live waiting for that better country to come and abstaining from the things of this world. You remember the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. In verse 13 through 16 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They have been thinking of the land which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. So God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared for them a city. The New Jerusalem, I think, it's referring to. But think about that. All the Old Testament saints were promised. What was Abraham promised? The land. What did he own? The grave of Sarah. How did he live? As a pilgrim. Did he live that very well, as we just read in Genesis 20? Well, he wasn't the best testimony. But then, was he worse than us? I think sometimes probably not. We read that passage this morning, so we won't look there now, but he lived his whole time as a pilgrim, looking forward to the promise of God, but not receiving it. Everything in this world is of this world, right? We are of heaven. The things in this world are not really helpful to us. Yes, we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter. In, this, in our society, we need transportation. We need a home and a car and clothes. But we can't be so fixated on them that they distract us from heaven. John makes that pretty clear in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. We all know the passage. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, it's not just as sometimes we think that, you know, when he talks about the flesh, sexual immorality. That's really not what it's talking about. It's talking about all the sins, you know, greed, idolatry, which is idolatry. It's talking about immorality. It's talking about anger. It's talking about strife. It's talking about all the sins you see mentioned in all the passages, especially Paul has a tendency to list them out. The things of the world, the things of the flesh, the passions of the flesh are all of those. And all of those were to be abstaining from. Peter goes on to tell us that you know, we had enough time in the past to deal with those. Now we need to change our thinking in First Peter 4, 1 through 3. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In other words, the rest of our life, we have died to sin in Christ. We have been buried and resurrected in him. We have a new life. We no longer need to live for those things. But the rest of the time we live in the flesh, we live for God. The time is past, he says. The time that is past is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
Yeah. Those things are in our past, yes, but they should not be in our present or our future. We should abstain from all of the things that this world loves so much. You know, when we seek comfort, we often seek it from things. We seek it from our idols. Greed is called idolatry for that reason. We, we, we seek it in pleasures. We seek it in many things. But we're told that's not where our comfort should come from. We need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And really, we seek our comfort in God. We must not live for the world, but for heaven. We don't live for the kingdom of this world, but for the kingdom of heaven. And we need to turn to that, turn away from our sin to our holiness. Uh, we always see that pattern in the New Testament. You know, forsake your sin, turn to holiness. Peter said the same thing in, in this passage. That's what we're talking about. Uh, Paul in Colossians 3 says that, when Christ, who is our life, appears, and you also will appear with him in glory, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath is coming, and these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self and its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we are not to live for the things of this world and the life of this world and the way we used to live and find our passion and find our joy. We are now to shift our thoughts to heavenly things. As he told us, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what he's talking about, and he's continuing to drive the point home repeatedly through 1 Peter. That we are to turn from that old life to our new life. That we are no longer we are no longer to live in this world for the world, but we are to live here as strangers and pilgrims for God, for Christ. We are to die to sin. Romans 6, 10-14 For the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been wrought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." having received the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins and a new life and a new heart and a new spirit, we are to turn away from those old things and not live that way any longer and turn to Christ. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now we are, as Peter has said, 
the elect of God. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we really need to live a life of self-denial in this cursed world until we finally reach our home, till we reach heaven. In heaven, we will no longer desire sin. We will no longer, we will be perfected. Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us that, that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice the spirits of those who are righteous men who have been made perfect. God's people are called righteous, but they are made perfect when they reach their heavenly home. And we need to remember that that is the reality of it. As we live in this life, it is one long struggle against the corrupt desires of the old man as we struggle to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling, worthy of the sacrifice of Christ, waiting for that day when we will be in heaven. We're told to continually be putting off that old man. Ephesians 4:22 and following, and put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness and true nature and holiness. And so we must deny that old self and put it off and put on the new. (coughs) We must deny our inclinations, our natural desires. Natural man is empty and wants to be filled. Well, natural man doesn't understand God is all sufficient, the one who can fill us. And so the natural man's passions are focused on himself, on the creature, on the flesh, as Paul says, and Peter says here. (coughs) Anything that natural man finds that he thinks will give him comfort or pleasure, he goes to them and says, you know, "Be be my satisfaction, instead of finding satisfaction in God, in Christ. He doesn't cease desiring it until he gets what he wants, and he's never going to get what he wants because the fulfillment can only come in God. And so, you know, that natural man is always wanting more and more sin and more and more corruption. And that is what is still in us, that old desire. And we need to be putting it off. We need to deny the things we really want if they're contrary to what God wants. And it's popular today for people to say, oh, but God wants me to be happy, and I'll find happiness in all my sins. Well, they don't say the second part quite so boldly, but God wants me to be happy. This is going to make me happy. Therefore, it's what God wants. Now, God wants you to be holy. And in holiness, you will find true happiness. In Christ, you'll find true fulfillment. If you're looking for fulfillment in the world, you'll fail. But if you deny yourself, deny your flesh what it desires, and focus on God, you'll find the fulfillment that he has. We have an example of what this self-denial should look like in Christ. (coughs) 
We read in Philippians 2.7 that he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He denied his place as, as God and came to this world, born not, not as a Lord, but as a servant, as, a, as lowly as he could be born. He was made flesh. He was enduring shame, we read in Hebrews 12. He denied all the worldly riches. For our sake he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8 9. A cow's feeding trough was his bed when he came into this world. He, he denied everything even to the point of denying his own life. He became obedient to death, Philippians 2.8. His self-denial to save us is the example of what our self-denial needs to look like to glorify him. There's nothing lost in this. I remember reading something called Pascal's Wager. It was a way of evangelism. And I read it and I just groaned. Because he tried to show that if we you know, forsake sin in this life and God exists, you'll be saved. But if you forsake sin in this life and God doesn't exist, it costs you nothing. Uh, not true. If God doesn't exist, we are of all men most miserable, we read. What is true is that if we deny our sins and God exists, and we know that God exists, and we deny ourselves, we will be compensated. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29, Everyone who has given up houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or property for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and we'll receive eternal life. If we give up our pride, if we give up worldly goods, worldly satisfactions, worldly desires for God, that small sacrifice will be paid back a hundredfold. And therefore, there is nothing lost by denying ourselves. Unless we're doubtful of God. If we're living in unbelief, we don't believe there's a, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, maybe I'll get some. You know, if we're living like that, then yes, there's great loss. But since we know God personally, we know Christ ourselves, <coughs> we know that he is faithful and true. We know that he will do all that he has promised. We know that everything we deny ourselves now will be paid back a hundredfold in heaven. Isn't that something to encourage our hearts? We really must be persuaded that Christ in the kingdom to come is of greater value, a hundred times greater value than all the fleeting passions of this life. The pleasures of sin seem to offer us something, but they offer us nothing, especially when compared to heaven and compared to the promises of God. He finishes the verse by reminding us that these passions of the flesh are waging war against our soul. Paul speaks of this battle in Romans 7, and I want to read that passage even though it's a bit long. Uh, verses 14 through 25 of Romans 7. 
Now this is Paul speaking of himself in the present tense as a believer, as a Christian, as a pastor, as an apostle. And he is not speaking of the old, the old life he had before he was saved, but he's speaking in the present tense. It says, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want to do, I do. I do the very things I hate. But if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that it is good. And what he is saying there is he continues to sin even though he hates it. He wants to do right. He wants to be holy. He wants to be perfect as God is perfect. But he's not accomplishing it. He keeps doing the things he hates. Now the wicked do not hate their sin. Now, he's talking as a Christian, as a believer. He said, so now it is no longer I who do, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, then it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. Only a believer can say that. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, Paul is making a distinction here between the old corrupt man, the sinful man, the flesh, and the new man in Christ, in the spirit. And he's making a distinction where the affections are coming from, but he he isn't excusing the sin. He's weeping, he's crying out, oh, wretched man that I am. This is true of me, even though I am an apostle and I want to do what is right. I am struggling with it. <clears throat> this is the war that we're talking about here in Peter. The, these sinful desires, these corruptions make war against our very soul in order to bring us down. And we are fighting that fight. And that's why we are to live as strangers and pilgrims. If we look at the things the world has to offer, the pleasures it has, has to offer, and says, they really offer me nothing. God has offered me everything. And if we think, oh, if I deny myself this thing, this sin, God will give me a hundred times more when I get to heaven. He talks about hoses. He talks about property. He talks about, Jesus did, about family. Many who become Christians lose their family. They lose their friends. They lose their place in society particularly in the day Peter is writing. To become a Christian, if you were a Jew, meant excommunication, banned from the temple. To become a Christian, if you were a Roman, meant you would be despised by your countrymen. 
But all they gave up, the promise was, if you give it up for him, there's a hundred times more to come. Because those things are waging war against your soul. You do not want to have anything to do with them. We are being sanctified in this life, but that indwelling corruption, it, it stirs up in us these corrupt affections, these desires. And once they've been set in motion, it's very hard to stop them, right? They don't put up with any consultation or delay or sleep on it. Sin does not allow those things. We rush then into sin when we give these things opportunity. The entire mechanism of those inborn tendencies in our life lead us the wrong way. And it's only the knowledge we have in Christ and the spirit of Christ in us that can cause us to go then in the right way. And we need to work hard to put off the old man, put on the new man, to, to deny ourselves and you know, take up our cross daily and deny ourselves if that's what's needed. We are to abstain from those things no matter how difficult A godly man will see this and weep for the corruption that is in his heart, as Paul was talking about. If there were a way to get rid of sin, there would be some comfort in that. But like a viper that is latched onto us, it's hard to get it off. And the poison is in. And so we, we struggle and we live fighting that sin every day. Uh, as long as the sin is in us in life, as long as the flesh has not been transformed when Christ returns or we have not died and gone to heaven, as long as that is there, sin will wage war against our soul. And this is brutal guerrilla warfare. We never know where the next attack will come from. It's like terrorism. We never know when the temptation will come, when the terror, when the Tendencies of our heart will lead us the wrong way. There's no end to this war until death. And so we need to be watchful. Just as Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, that's what we're talking about today, that that indwelling sin, that corruption that we haven't been able to purify, that old man that we still haven't completely put off as we put on the new one. That's always there. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. So watch and pray. The one who's watchful keeps an eye out for all that enters into the soul so that the enemy may not sneak in and do harm. And he knows his enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, he knows their wickedness. The one who watches carefully knows how tireless our enemies are. We need to be on guard with everything. Close the doors and lock the windows. Or close the windows and lock the doors. You know, as Job says, make a covenant with our eyes not to look. Shut up our ears. Close our mouth. So that we do not sin. We're to be sober, vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, 
as a roaring lion walks to and fro, seeking whom he may desire, devour. 1 Peter 5.8. You know, we know that enemy. We need to be watchful. If we are to live our lives abstaining from the sinful pleasures, then we need to be careful and to be watched. The world will always be there with its flatteries, its threats, its offers of good things. But we need to be fixing our eyes upon Christ, upon heaven, upon the kingdom. I am just a stranger here. I am a pilgrim here. What you offer me, I can't take with me. What you offer me may hinder me from getting home. You know, when Wewin and I were moving back to the U.S., we had a room, my office, piled with things. And we had a layout of suitcases and a scale. The only things we could take with us were what would fit in the legally allowed number of suitcases. And the last day we we're on the floor going, oh, this one's still two pounds overweight. Let's go through everything and find two pounds that we don't take. You know, we can take nothing with us to heaven now. Why do we want to have those things? Why do we worry about material possessions? Why do we worry about pleasures? Why do we worry about fun? You know, we give up a little fun, we'll have a hundred times as much in heaven. We give up a little pleasure, it'll be a hundred times more in heaven. That's what we're being told. You know, live our lives as strangers here who can't take it with us and store up for ourselves our treasures in heaven. And be careful of all those corruptions, all those things this world has to offer that make war against our soul. And be careful of that old man, the bitter, sinful, angry, resentful, greedy, lustful man that lives within us. And do not give him a place. Do not make a way for him. Stay away from what he wants. Abstain from sinful desires, deny ourselves, and seek Christ in his kingdom. It's a tough road, but that's why he's given us so much encouragement that we should remember that you know, we are a chosen nation, a holy priesthood, a people unto God, possessed by him. We have treasure stored up in heaven. We should remember all of those things and abstain from the desires of the flesh. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we're not called to struggle here with no reward. We're not called to deny ourselves with no hope. But that you have made a way for us to escape from the sins of this world. You promise not to tempt us beyond our ability or promise that you will not tempt us, but we cannot be tempted beyond our ability because you're there, you've made a way for us, that you've promised a reward for all that we give up for you and pray that you'd bless us and help us to give up our sins and to be holy before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.